Let's pray. Lord, Father, God, thank you so much for allowing us to get here safely, Lord. And um, we just pray, Father, that you calm our anxious hearts. We have so much going on, Father God. There's so much going on out there, Lord. And we just ask you to give us this time to think of your word and, Lord, to, uh, to be encouraged and to be equipped, Father God, to, to go on another day, to be able to not be focused on ourselves, Lord, but to be focused on others, Lord, they need to, uh, Father God, hear of your word in this desperate world, Father God. So we pray, Father, that this message today on discipleship and what you look for in true discipleship, Lord, penetrates our heart, Father God. And we pray you bring the atmosphere of heaven into this very room. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, family, we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. Luke chapter 9. Verses 23 to 26. Give you some time to find that. Luke 9. Okay. So I start off my, uh, my studies with a little introduction. I know that I had a brother this, this evening ask me, you know, Frank, uh, I like a roadmap when, when somebody speaks from the pulpit. Uh, I want to know what, what's your point and where you're getting to. Uh, from speaker. So I hope the introduction helps you. Uh, The passage we're going to study tonight shows the heart of Jesus Christ for true, I believe, true discipleship. This passage is an invitation to sinners who are thinking about becoming followers of Jesus. Here, God is going to lay out for us certain requirements needed in order to become true believers. Jesus himself makes it very clear that in order to follow him, it demands something extremely radical. And that is denial of self. Not self-denial. Denial of self. Maybe even to the point of dying. Well, usually when you deny yourself certain things, you die to yourself. While you're dying to yourself, God also requires that you be obedient as you're doing so to his commandments. Now, the simple passage puts the true gospel in sharp contrast to the false gospel that's being preached today, that is false teachers. Let me tell you a little bit about them, and I'm sure a lot of you know it, but I want to define these folks. These people preach a self-fulfillment gospel. Well, what's that, Frank? They're fakes. They actually make us or try to make us believe that God, Jesus, is a genie that he's going to somehow grant you your wishes. They preach the gospel of healthy and rich. They preach self-love and they preach self-esteem. So, so on and so forth, right? Their primary focus is to promote self-love, which focuses on their satisfaction instead of God's glory. That's what these folks preach. And in fact, just to prove that point, if you read 2 Timothy 3.2, the false teachers are spoken about there as well. These false doctrines came along in essence to replace real biblical gospel salvation. And that's what Satan's been trying to do ever since the very beginning, is to dilute or to somehow taint the word of God. Closer? Thanks, Sal. Jesus holds nothing back when he asks us to follow him. In fact, Jesus lets us know in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, that to follow him may actually make your situation on here on earth, believe it or not, even worse. Did you know that? 
I didn't say it. Matthew did. Matthew 10, 37-39, he goes even further to ask us to be willing to pay whatever price is necessary in order to follow him. The same kind of character that athletes have today. If you talk about someone who's an Olympian or someone involved in sports, you know, I know Pastor Tim talks a lot about the, the karate and, you know, that kind of stuff. Those guys will do, go to any lengths to get the gold medal. I know you may be thinking to yourself, well, Frank, uh, I came to church to be uplifted today. And so far, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really looking forward to this message. Hold on. <laughs> so Jesus never asked the believer to develop their confidence by having a better view or a better outlook. He never asks you to do that. In fact, he also never asks you to wait till you have a better situation. Have you ever said that to yourself? You know, if I have a better view, I'll step into that ministry or if my situation becomes better. He's never asked that of us. But he asks us to follow him no matter how severe the consequences are even to your very fears. I'm up here, and I am terrified. Most people who know me, who are in my inner circle, I am terrified of public speaking. I get nauseous. And right now, God is holding me up. Okay? So, so he doesn't ask for that. In Mark 10, 17, a rich young ruler, you may remember this story, who wanted to follow Jesus, had no interest in denial of self. In fact, he was so eager to follow Jesus and gain eternal life, but he possessed way too many riches, and he preferred his treasures on earth rather than in heaven. And a lot of us feel that way sometimes about something in our lives, right? So regarding denial of self for Jesus' sake, there are three stories in Luke that reinforce the principle that following Jesus demands a willingness to give up everything for his sake. Luke 9.57, someone told Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. God told this man that he could become homeless. That's exactly right. He could be homeless. Remember? Foxes have den, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to follow him promises nothing in this world. I'm not trying to discourage you. But, I mean, we put on seatbelts in our car because there may be a possibility that you may get into an accident. True discipleship, you should know what's, what this is about. And if you're having difficulties being a disciple of Christ and following Jesus, you're in the right place. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Luke 9.59, Jesus challenges another man to follow him. But the man said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This man wanted to wait until his father had died so he can receive his inheritance, uh, right? So he would follow Jesus once he had his earthly treasure and then come to him. And finally, Luke 9.61, another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to my family. This man wanted to get the support of his family before he left and followed Christ. His requirements were Jesus and earthly support. Jesus confronted him with the true call to discipleship. He said, let everything go and follow me. Jesus will later emphasize that a clean break with family, unbelieving family too, may be required. Don't believe me? Read Luke 14, verse 26. Someone who wants to follow Jesus must be desperate enough 
to pursue righteousness radically. Okay? So that was my introduction. <laughs> okay. So let's read the verses together. Now I'm reading out of a New King James. And then we just kind of break it down together. Okay? And, what, and what, as we're reading this, you know, I was trying to think to myself, when I think about reading the Word of God, especially when Tim gets up here, I think to myself, like, buy a fireplace with a warm blanket, it's snowing outside, and I have my coffee. That's what I think about when I think of reading the Word of God. So let's think of that. To me, that's, that's, that's what I like. Okay, verse 23 says this, New King James. It says, Then he, Jesus, said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, here are some requirements, right? Let him what? Deny himself and take up what? His cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So I'm going to talk about verse 23 by itself, and then I'm going to break verse 23 down to the three requirements, okay? So verse 23 says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to follow me, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The good news Jesus preaches here, preached is that God offers forgiveness for all sins and the gift of eternal life to those who genuinely follow him in faith. That's what he's saying. That's the good news. To follow Jesus, one must have a total abandonment of self. To be honest, this is a totally radically different message than most churches are preaching today. Honestly. The word of God says that becoming a Christian is difficult. In fact, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, the Lord uses the analogy of two gates. Someone was speaking about that this evening. To show the choices that faces every person. Two gates. The first gate is what? Wide, which is easy to enter. It opens to a broad path. That easy way, however, leads to eternal destruction. The second gate is small and narrow, constricted, and the path is extremely difficult. Yet that difficulty is the only way that leads to eternal life. But the question now becomes, what makes the narrow gate so narrow and difficult? Okay, so is it narrow? So you, I think of myself as going through this little box and it's just difficult to get into? No. The answer is simply denial of self. That's why it's narrow. Rejecting this truth made the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 22, very sad and heartbroken to the point that he actually walked away from Christ. That's not what Christ wanted, okay? Because of the necessity of denial of self, Jesus has challenged his followers to consider what it might cost them to come to him. So let me read Luke 14, verses 28 through 32, because this is God's word. He says, but don't begin... Until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? That makes sense, right? You wouldn't build a house and then just figure out the budget later, <laughs> right? Okay. Maybe I would. My wife would tell you that. Anyway. Otherwise, you might come. 
complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. I like that. By the way, this version that I'm reading to you is what I read to my Sunday school kids. It's called the NLT. Uh, it's a translation. It's a little easier version. I just like that version a little bit better to read this. And then it says, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against them. And if he can't, check this out, he will send a delegation to discuss the terms of peace. That's wise. 10,000 against 20? That's very wise. While the enemy's still far away. That's a, that's, I should have had this in high school when I saw the big guy coming after me. But after this, I love this, going to verse 33, is after this, Jesus applies his illustration for clarity in Luke 33. He says, so then, so then, he says, none of us, none of you, can become my disciples who does not give up all that he possesses. Hold on, before you get nervous. The Lord is not saying that salvation comes through economic poverty. That's not what he's saying. It comes through denial of self. That is God before everything. Okay? You know, and I want to make this, I wanted to make the point even clearer. And I love this pastor. Usually the pastors that I really, I don't know why they're all dead, the ones that I kind of tend to quote, but Alan Redpath out of the Moody Church is just one pastor that I love. And he says this, and I want you to just think about this as I read it, okay? In terms of God to you and your definition. Alan Redpath puts it best. He says, our God is the very thing or person which we think of most precious for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice and who moves our heart with the warmest love. It is the personal thing that if lost would leave you desolate. Is that our kids? Is that our wife? Is that our job? That could be your God. Denial of self is not simply about material things, but it's about anything that is more important than God. So I've got a question. What's the real point then about denial of self? That is, that coming to Jesus involves full submission, as best as you can, one day at a time, full submission to his lordship and willingness to abandon whatever he asked for his purpose. That's exactly what it is. Now understand this, that the gospel, the gospel is so contrary to self-love. It's so contrary to being selfish and it's so contrary, this is for me, to being stubborn and self-willed, very contrary, that no one can come to faith in Christ apart from a regenerating work which is only done by the Holy Spirit. A true commitment to Christ involves denial of self, bearing your cross, and being obedient to him. So let's break them down. In verse 23, Denial of self. Now the term deny self in the Greek means arneomai, which was the same term, believe it or not, that Peter uses when he denied Jesus in Matthew 26. 
denied him. Same term is used for the denial of self. Now, this is the same term used for his followers to follow him. They must give up all dependence and confidence in themselves and in their belief that their works will save them. I believe that no one had better religious self-credentials than the Apostle Paul. There's nobody better in the Bible. This guy was, in fact, on paper, a Harvard graduate, studying under Gamil or Gamaliel. This, I mean, literally, they, I understand that if you studied under someone like Gamaliel or Gamil, you would use his colors, your robe. There was something indicating who you studied under. So that's why some commentators believe that when Paul would go to a synagogue, this is Brother, do you have a word for us because of what? This would be like coming with a Princeton shirt or Harvard. I mean, that's, this guy had the credentials. Uh, but I'm going to use him. When Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, all of his religious accomplishment, that is his self-salvation, became meaningless to him. Well, Frank, I don't believe you. Okay. Romans 7, 18. He says, Paul, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I relate to that. And Philippians 3, 7 through 8, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. What are those things? His self-credentials. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. And finally, 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, <laughs> and I am the chief or the worst among them. So there you go, someone with the credentials. The Harvard graduate saying, that piece of paper on the wall means nothing to me, to, to know Jesus Christ. So as you can see, Paul represented what's called the poor in spirit. He recognized that he was spiritually bankrupt. And just like Paul, those who came face to face with God are overwhelmed with a sense of their own sinfulness. Now, i got a question to ask you. Did you get overwhelmed with your own sinfulness when God touched your life? Because I remember I was on Route 80 going to Pennsylvania when God touched my life. And i got to say, I sobbed like I never... I think I sobbed once like that when my dad like spanked me so hard that we're like little snot bubbles coming out of my nose. But literally, I, I sobbed to feel and to understand the sinfulness that I have in my life. And that uh, when I, if it was like Tetris falling, like little blocks in my brain made sense when I felt God's love for me and knowing that the manner in which I was living just wasn't pleasing to him. That's what Paul must have felt, overwhelmed on the road to Damascus. It's against this backdrop that the truth of God's forgiving grace is manifested. To make this point even clearer, David, King David, in Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart of God. So he wants that. That's what God's looking for. Psalm 34, 18, in fact, this is one of my wife's favorite psalms, Psalm 34. It says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. That's what he's looking for. That's how good God is. So then the law, God bless you. So then the law, that is perfection, the law, provides no hope for us, no hope for the sinner at all. 
The law was not given as a standard by which we can achieve salvation, right? Rather, it was given to us to show us our sinful nature and to reveal to us our helplessness. The law is supposed to make it clear to us that we need a Savior and are unable to save ourselves. What the law requires is absolutely impossible. It requires absolute obedience and perfection. Now, I've got a question because I used to, when I, when I would read the Bible and I would read about the law, when I was a new Christian, I wanted to do things perfectly because I wanted to achieve things on my own merit. That's how I was raised. I'm a good Catholic. And so, at the time. And um, I wanted to do things with my, my own medals. And God gave me to me in my heart. I was driving. I commuted for 14 years from the Poconos to Newark, New Jersey, every day, back and forth, two hours each way. And I had time to listen to the Word of God. And I remember saying, can I do 55 that's the law. Can I literally do 55 for the next month? Just drive 55 miles an hour. Not do 54, not do 56, but 55 for a month. I said, okay, can I do it for 10 days? Five days. <laughs> the law is very hard to, to do it. If you violate one, you violate them all. That's just the way the law works. So, of course, it's supposed to show us that we need a redeemer. The realization that we are unable to satisfy the demands of the law should drive us to our living Savior. That is the first step that Jesus is hoping you make with the word repentance. That's how you get there. Does that make sense? That's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to you get there by that. So, so, let's talk about this process of repentance. Now, the word repentance in the Greek is metanoia. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about three things when it comes to repentance. Okay, there is a mental aspect, an emotional aspect, and a willful aspect. I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to go through them, okay? So metanoia is the mental part. This word represents the mental aspect of repentance. It means to reverse one's thinking, to change your mind. You see yourself as God sees you, fallen and helpless, and you can't save yourself, right? AA, which I'm familiar with, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for a very, very long time, uh, uses that in the first step. It says you admitted you were powerless over, I say sins. That's really what it is. I can't, I can't control it. I just really don't have the power to control it. I, I, I just don't. I can't do it. So you admitted you were powerless. Then we receive, once you have a mental and you say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction, I'm going to metanoia, an about face. I see that I'm going in the wrong direction. You have an emotional aspect, which is metamelomai, uh, meta which is the regret and sorrow. So obviously you're seeing, you're like, oh my gosh, I see the way God sees me. You feel regret and sorrow, and it changes your mind and produces that, that feeling of, of understanding this next part, which is a willful thing. It's epis repo, which means the act or the will to change your direction. So those three things occur succinctly, one after the other, the repentance part. In short, the mental intellectual part involves the recognition of sin. That's really what it is. And the emotional part involves the brokenness over your sin. And finally, the act and willingness involves the change of life away from sin and moving towards God, simply put. But I'd like to also point this out, that repentance is not a human work. It is a spiritual one. In other words, someone who is dead spiritually 
can't repent on their own accord. They can't. They are trapped by Satan's lies. They're blinded by darkness. Repentance can only come when the Spirit of God uses God's Word to wake them up to their lost condition and convict them of that sin. So those who are woke take Jesus on his terms and not their own terms. They don't say, well, I only come to Jesus if he does this for me or if I get that from him. They come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Okay, so that's denial of self. Okay, bearing your cross. Let's get there. For some reason, Christians today that believe that bearing your cross means an unpleasant or difficult situation or circumstance. That no matter how trivial it is, is you bearing your cross. Some people may think it's a job. Some people may think it's a wayward child. That's, right. Some people may think it's a mother-in-law or a father-in-law. Not at all. And others believe that it's some spiritual sense of identifying with the crucifixion. But there is no way that at that time when God was speaking that his followers would have interpreted bearing your cross as something as trivial. I'm not minimizing those are true things. A wayward child, I'm somebody that experiences that. I have two boys that are unsaved, okay? Keep them in prayer, Frank and Aaron. Okay, that's very difficult. I'm not... but. I'm telling you, back then when God spoke this to them, these folks understood what bearing your cross was because it was the most painful way to die. It was crucifixion. What it meant to them was to endure hatred. The Bible talks about it in Deuteronomy. To die on the cross was to be accursed by God. So bearing your cross meant hatred, hostility, rejection, persecution, shame. That's what it meant. A very a burden to bear compared, you know, a very light burden compared to eternal life. They understood that. And if you don't think so, ask any athlete. Again, these are folks that understand to, to get the golden ring. I used to remember my dad uh, who passed away at 52. This is my biological father. I have a stepfather. He used to take me to Coney Island. I love Coney Island. Nathan's out dog. I get a knish, mustard, you know. And there was a carousel that was very old, over 100 years old. And there was a golden ring. If you got the golden ring, you went around again. Believe it or not, I almost lost fingers trying to get that golden ring. I would reach, my arms must have been, I mean, my arms aren't long now. My arms must have been like, I mean, I was reaching, almost falling off this horse, trying to grab that golden ring. And I was thinking about this as I was thinking about what God talks about in terms of bearing something, right? You want something so bad, it's radical. Because you want that golden ring or you want what that represents. So they seem to value these folks who understand this eternal life more than their present life. And I hate to use the example, but there are people who will kamikaze themselves because they want eternal life more than they want their present life. You know? Now, please understand that there is no crown without a cross. There is no crown without a cross. Eternal life is so precious that those who truly seek it are willing to give up everything to obtain it, even suffer with joy. I'm trying to get there. They can say, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So that's bearing your cross. Self-denial, denial of self, Bearing your cross. And finally, in verse 23, follow me. What does that mean? 
Well, the word follow indicates a continual pattern of obedience. Jesus requested disobedience in the following verses. John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So follow me. John 15, 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. And finally, 1 John 2, 5 through 6 says, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, I'm reading all this to you, and it's convicting me. Obviously, there's no way I get that perfect, but God is asking me to wake up every morning because his mercies are new every morning and try. You do your best. But this is, this parameters, there's four corners to this menu. There's four corners. So no one is perfect. Everyone falls short every day, and God puts us back on track. Right? Amen? So, let me point out one very important fact that repentance, denial of self, cross-bearing, and obedience are not works that make a sinner acceptable to God. These things do not make you acceptable to God. So what are they? Neither are they things in chronological steps that lead to conversion. These are just things I'm pointing out. What are they? They are components to a saving faith. These components, in essence, are legs on a table to saving faith. Can you see them? Denial of self, bearing your cross, obedience, repentance. Do you see those four legs? And then the table of saving faith. Why am I giving you that picture? Okay. Well, to have one of those components and not the other, It's like to have something that doesn't work to its full potential and richness. A lot of us, I know for me, let me speak about me, there was times where I would walk around as an Eeyore Christian. Oh, man. Jesus is awesome, man. Great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Wednesday, sir. Sunday, sir. Oh, yeah. I mean, literally, and I was wondering what's going on with me. And I wasn't denial of self. I was just, man, and you know, with my hobbies or in some, you know, when I would drive, the anger I would feel. I wasn't turning it over to God so much. I was doing everything in my own strength. Nothing. I wasn't even repenting sometimes of my actions. Things that I held in my heart over my boys or my job, really angry at my boss, something like that, simple. Those things can become septic if not turned over to Christ. Okay. So, saving faith cannot be produced by human power. The components that produce it are works given by the Holy Spirit. Since the components, those four legs, are given to you through the Holy Spirit, well, your saving faith is also given to you through the Holy Spirit. Let's read verse 24 and 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For for what profit... Is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now, Jesus further drives home the point by suggesting what seems to be absolutely a logical statement. Whosoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's completely just doesn't make sense, right? So Jesus is saying, in essence, that the only way for a sinner to save his life from eternal hell is to abandon everything for his sake. 
That's what it means. So the message is that those who focus on loving themselves, their own self-esteem, their own self-fulfillment in life, you know, even with a superficial interest in Jesus, will lose their eternal soul according to Matthew 7, verses 21 through 22. But that to those who abandon self-interest and hate this sinful condition and give themselves wholly to Jesus will be saved. Do you do this perfectly? No. But you have to have a willingness. Remember God talks about a mustard seed of faith. Now understand that Jesus was not interested in all forms of self-denial. He was not saying that those who give their lives for some social justice or some political position, don't even get me started with that, or some even religious event for some cause will benefit spiritually. He wasn't talking about that. The denial of self that Jesus is calling for is specifically for his sake. Do you remember the Beatitudes? When I read the Beatitudes and that translation that I'm using a little bit, which is the NLT, I read it as if anybody hates you for anything other than you loving Christ, apologize. If anybody has a bone to pick with you for anything other, that means it shouldn't be your political position. It shouldn't be whether you like the Jets or the Giants. It should be, I love Christ, and that's the reason why these folks, because, or just apologize. That's how I read it. So God is in essence saying, if you take a position, it should just be for my sake, nothing else. That's the way I read it. But that those who abandon this wholly for Christ will be saved. That's what he's saying. So, the denial of self that Jesus is calling for was especially for his sake and his purpose. So, for instance, it takes more Holy Spirit to forgive those who hurt you or have hurt you in the past. And there are a lot of people with a lot of hurt. I know I have my own. It takes a lot more Holy Spirit to forgive them. Or to pray for those who despitefully use you. Then it, it does, then it takes more Holy Spirit than to feed 5,000 people or 4,000. It takes more Holy Spirit, I always say to some young guys, I always say it takes more Holy Spirit to wash the dishes for your wife than it is to buy a diamond necklace or to do the laundry. It takes a lot of Holy Spirit to forgive. In the second part of this verse, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, For what profit? Is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Put another way, what Jesus is saying is assume for one second or for the sake of argument that you could possess everything you wanted right now. Everything. You got everything you've asked for. Now, what profit it you if you forfeited your eternal soul? I was talking to some uh, folks this afternoon, this, uh, this evening, where I was watching a commercial and it says if you've um, uh, won a lawsuit. Say, for instance, you got half a million dollars, but you don't want to wait and get the annuity. We'll give you 10000 now. <laughs> and people will give up the half a million dollars over a period of time just to have $10,000 now. But God is saying this is eternal. Eternal. So the obvious answer, there's nothing, right? Because nothing in the world is more important or valuable than eternity. Verse 26, and we'll close. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's 
and of the holy angels. This verse has always interested me, and at times, in fact, I've been misguided by its meaning. It really used to convict me. Uh, in preparing for the Bible study, the Lord granted me just some greater clarity into understanding what he meant here. Jesus is identifying, when he talks about this, about, you know, if you deny me, I'll deny you. He's talking about people who will not repent. Those people who do not believe in him, okay? Those are the ones he talks about when it says, ashamed of me and my words. To be ashamed here is not the same as missing an opportunity to witness. Please don't use this verse and beat yourself up. Oh, was I ashamed not to witness to that guy on the bus? Oh, God's going to be ashamed. He won't proclaim me to his father. No, this is for a whole different crowd, not you. Okay? So to be ashamed here means to reject, despise God's word, and to think of God's word as unacceptable. The folks here are proud of things they should be ashamed of, and they glory in that shame. We see this today in a certain community, a homosexual community. Also, we see this in Hollywood, where adultery is glorified. That's a big thing. That's okay. They, they're doing it. The movies are doing it. Drug use is fine. Uh, there used to be a funny, uh, not funny, it was, it, it's incredible because uh, my boys used to watch the show on Nickelodeon when they were kids, and there was an actress named Amanda Burns. And uh, my son, uh, my middle son, Aaron, I brought her up, and my middle son, Aaron, was telling me that she is so addicted to drugs, she's lost a contract with, uh, with Nickelodeon, and it's just, it's just a, it's a shame, and it's almost, uh, there's no help for them. It's almost paraded. There's also perpetual divorce, as if it's, that's fine. So God knows the day and age we live in, so he's preparing us and letting us know, I know where you're at. I know what's going on. My word is not antiquated. It's for, it's for all times, for all generations, and for all light years if you're a Star Trek fans. However, this type of attitude isn't new. We know this from Hollywood. God speaks about this behavior taking place in the time of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 6.15, I found this verse. I thought it was really interesting. Again, I'm using that. Uh, this one is the N-I-R-V. Don't even ask me what that means. So, it says, God says to the unrepentant Israelites, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. 1 Corinthians 18 and verse 23, it says, the message of the cross is foolish and offensive to those who want to hold onto their sin. That's really what it is. And John 12, 43 says, who love the approval, be careful of this, who love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I don't want to open my mouth because I'm going to be really disliked. I'm going to be controversial. God will give you wisdom for that, when to open it. I open my mouth too much. Pray for me. So what will God do in turn for this behavior the second part of the verse makes it clear. What's God going to do to these folks, to this behavior? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his own glory, in his Father's, and of the holy angels. What does this mean exactly, this last part? Well, Daniel 7 and Revelation 20 talk about it. It describes it. It pronounces the appearance of the Son of Man who will render judgment and receive his eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. He's coming back. There's no doubt. 
And those who were ashamed of him and rejected him will be sentenced to eternal hell. That's just the way it is. I didn't say take it up with the author. I'm just telling you. I'm just a vessel. Like, a little, like this thing. I'm the plastic. On the other hand, Christians who are not ashamed of Christ's word, the promise is that God will redeem us and grant us forgiveness for eternal life. Now, I like that part. That's hallelujah. That's exactly right. You're redeemed. Now, listen to me. Please don't think that what I, everything I've said, if it's touched you, if it's said something to you, if it's brought you down in any way, understand this. I'm up here. You know, you know to Sunday you're going to see someone else up here. Tim is up here. God uses most of the pastors in most churches for you to... Most of you are better than us. <laughs> We've got so much sin on our record. I'm being honest. God uses the foolish to confine those who are wise. I'm not just saying that because it sounds good. It's the truth. It's the truth. So I'm telling you that if you struggle with a lot of this, you're in the right place. You're among family. There's not one person sitting here, not even me on this, not even Tim, not even Matt Fisher at a different church, my old pastor. Not one person that does not have sin on their record. Please do not feel like you're different. This is the first meeting. That I, this, is, this is the real meeting right here. This is the real 12 step. This is a 12 step. This is it. The one step, Jesus. But this is it. You're in the right place. So for us, we have eternal life. And because you have eternal life, you should feel that joy that you've won. There's victory. But with that victory, you should also feel that if you see somebody lost, there shouldn't be anger towards them. There shouldn't be hatred towards them. There's something that's happening. Um, there's a shift, and God said it in the Word. He said, there's going to be a day where the heart of men will grow cold. And that's happening to a lot of us. A lot of us are watching Facebook, things we shouldn't probably see, listening to a lot of talking heads and walking into church. You know, I heard a brother in church, in church, not here, but I heard a brother in church say, if that guy is of this party affiliation, I'm going to, I feel like bopping him in the face. I couldn't believe it. Of a party, you're one political party. That shouldn't be in church today. We're one, we all should be monarchists. That should be your party. Your party is monarchy, a king, Jesus. Somebody says, are you Republican or Democrat? You say, I'm a monarchist. I believe in the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign. When I say that at work, people walk away from me. <laughs> I'm a conservative monarchist. No, people walk away from me. Forget that guy. He's a nut. That's what they say. So we have eternal life. The wonderful truth is that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And God is not ashamed to be our God. He's not. He loves us and likes us. The walk is not easy, but it's 100% worth it. I wonder if there's any accountants here today or people who invest money because this one's for you. Because it guarantees, that is, the walk with Christ, because it guarantees to pay off in the end, we should invest in it. If Jesus was a stock or a mutual fund, your financial advisor, your stockbroker or banker would demand that you invest in Jesus because there's a 100% return. Did you know that? Your stock at most right now is doing 15%. And if you have a mutual fund, good luck. That's probably doing 3 or 4%. God is 100%. 100% of your life savings should go into this type of investment, no matter the ups and the downs of the stock. 
It's guaranteed. That is your ups and downs. No matter how you feel, I feel safe today because all the kids are behaving and my wife's treating me good or my husband's doing the right thing. No matter, or you don't feel, oh, everybody at work hated me today. I didn't have a good drive over to church. No matter how you feel, God is faithful because he can't deny himself. And that investment, no matter the ups and downs, is guaranteed to pay out to you in the end. You should rest in that. So start now. So let's try to ask the Holy Spirit to help us repent daily. Help us deny ourselves. Help us bear our own cross because we can't do it. And help us each and every day at least a little bit to be obedient more to his word and to have his loving guidance guide us each and every day. That's all I'm trying to say. Let's pray. Lord, Father, God, thank you so much for your word, Father. Lord, you know, we just want to hear truth. We want to understand, Father God, that this is not a warning as much as a description it's not a warning. It's more of a description, detailed description of what's there for us, Father God. That you strengthen us, that we're what to expect. You let us know what to expect. And you let us know that we're okay, that you are acquainted, Lord, with rejection. You are acquainted with abandonment. You are acquainted, Father God, Lord, with burdens. And, Father God, you stick closer than a brother, and we love you. And we thank you this evening, Lord. Help us get home safely and help Carlos, Father God, as we think of him. I pray that he's well, and also with Tammy and Charlie, Father God. And we pray that our pastor is safe, Lord, and he returns home safe. In your holy and precious name, Jesus, amen.